Super Scoreboard. Women in Football Podcast. Inspiring the next generation of girls in the game. Welcome to Super Scoreboard's Women in Football Podcast with me, Joe Hendry. And joining me this week is Laura McCallum. Laura, welcome. How are you? Thanks, Joe. I'm really well, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad at all. Now, you are your official title is Head of Football Admin and Legal Affairs at Dundee United. Did I get that right? That's correct, yep. Now, that must be fairly full on. I would imagine you have had a busy few months. It's been very busy, yes. Um, ever since March, it's, it's been non-stop with coronavirus and other kind of legal and regulatory matters. Um, yes, it's a very big role. It encompasses various aspects of the kind of football club affairs if you like and I think you came into that role last September so you're fairly new to it has it have you had to just kind of hit the ground running with it yeah I mean I prior prior to coming to the club I've been in kind of sport regulatory roles previously never in-house at a football club but I worked for a law firm Harper McLeod in their sports law department and has kind of built up a lot of contacts at football clubs from from there. Um, so I'd very much advise clubs externally. Um, and then following Half McLeod, I went to work for a football consultancy, um, Lombardi Associates, doing, doing the same thing, working with football clubs, advising on regulatory and legal matters from the outside looking in. Um, so when I went to Dundee United, it was very much doing what I had done before, but from the inside looking out this time, you know, very much at the coalface, but also with, a, you know, a, kind of a lot of additional um, aspects to it as well that I wasn't quite familiar with. So, so yeah, it's been, uh, it's been quite the baptism, I have to say, <laughs> um, over, over, um, over the last year, um, certainly since, since, since March, it's been a bit of a roller coaster. Yeah, that's the thing is, like you say, you're so familiar with the industry from an outsider's perspective. But when you go inside, you know, it is completely different ball game. Excuse that was a horrible pun, like just. <laughs> um, but it is, it is completely different. And I guess you're doing it in an extraordinary time as well. Like you say, with with all the challenges that the pandemic's sort of thrown in front of us. And then obviously the situation with Dundee United's promotion as well, you know, and all that. So, I mean how challenging has it been for you? It's been certainly one of the, when I started at the football club, one of the biggest challenges I found myself facing was this idea that, you know, ever since university, I'd been either in law firms or in a kind of consultancy business with other like-minded people around me. You know, they'd all gone through the same education. They'd all gone through the same training. They all had the the same kind of knowledge and experience, maybe at different levels, but they very much had the, the kind of fundamentals in terms of law governance. Um, whereas when I went to the, the football club, it was very much me, myself and I, and, and that support mechanism that I had, you know, taken for granted all of those years was no longer there. And I think that's been the biggest challenge, A, not having the support system around you anymore, but also taking for granted that the people that you are now working with do not have the, the the basic knowledge that 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 you expected them to have because they haven't gone through the same training, obviously. So it was very much having to, you know, approach approach the same problems in a different way, using different language, for instance. Um, that would have been the, the biggest challenge um, from kind of September to March. 
Um, thereafter, um, over the last few months, it's been very challenging again for for various reasons. A, the you know the the challenges that came from coronavirus and um, and also the the legal case itself was very unprecedented. You know, it was it was very new, even for you know liaising with lawyers and, and various law firms. It was it was new to them as well. The the information was very fluid. It was changing on a daily basis. Um, we at the club, in particular, we had you know a large proportion of the workforce put on furlough. Um, so I would probably say ninety percent of the club was on furlough, and really the executive and the heads of departments were the only ones left behind to try and now do, you know, their own roles as well as numerous other roles whilst dealing with all of the challenges that coronavirus brought with it. Um, for me, that was very much, I was, as well as obviously dealing with the legal case and all the kind of health and safety implications that came with coronavirus, um, my role was very much kind of adopting a, a HR role in terms of staff welfare, various different employment policies, taking into account um, COVID-19, but also dealing with the employment administration that came with COVID-19, putting everybody on furlough, getting furlough agreements drafted up, dealing with the players in relation to that. So it's been it's been very challenging, but listen, at the same time, it's been, it's been a learning curve and a very steep learning curve. And I think, you know, we'll all come out of this stronger and, you know, with a... A lot, you know, with a completely different skill set under our belt. Mm. And also on top of that, obviously, you know, we talked, touched there briefly on the legal case and now Dundee United are promoted. Now there's a huge season ahead. Another different type of challenge as well, top flight football. And you must, you know, there must be a huge sense of relief around the club as a whole now. Yeah, uh -huh. I mean, certainly the from, I mean, the legal case was first served on us around about the middle of June, and we had just returned to training. So to have that hanging over all of our heads, you know, hanging over the sporting director, Tony Asgar's head, the players' heads. I mean, Tony himself had, you know, numerous challenges with having to, you know, try. And obviously we lost our manager during that period as well, um, Robbie Nielsen. Um, so he was having to, he was tasked with having to find a new manager. I was having to deal with all the kind of employment stuff around that, all the contractual um, obligations around it, um, recruitment of other players, all with with that hanging over our heads and always having the question: Well, are you in the Premiership? Are you not in the Premiership? Um, so that in itself was was very challenging as well. You know, trying to encourage players or, or, or managers to, to come to the club despite you know that question mark hanging over us um so yeah but I mean we, we, we got there um I always felt we had a strong case in any event um, so it was important to you know defend it and defend our position um but but yeah I mean we're, we're pleased to be where we are we've, we've had a strong start to the season um and everybody's just getting on with it now i mean we're all we're all very much you know pleased to see the back of the legal case we're obviously still dealing with the challenges of covid um but yeah we're, i mean very pleased to see the back of the the legal case hoping not to be involved in any other major litigation anytime soon i don't think my blood pressure could take it it's not honesty um but yeah so 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 now we're just really being um we're dealing with return of spectators. That's going to be the next major 
kind of project. So we're we're involved in that just now. It's a massive exercise. Um, and this has very much been what the last few months have been like. You know, it's going from one project to another project, all because of COVID, all dealing with all the kind of health and safety aspects of it all. Um, and bringing, you know, quite a lot of the staff are back off of furlough now and are back to their kind of usual working hours. So it's all kind of bringing them along for the journey, if you like. It's a good opportunity to try and develop them at the same time um, because there are a lot of kind of regulatory aspects to this that affect different departments. So it's a good opportunity to do some kind of learning and development as well through all of these projects. After all of that as well, you know, you must absolutely need and deserve a holiday. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, I, I keep, um, I, I'm hoping to get away for maybe a few days during the international break, um, just within in the UK, maybe to a, a spa hotel. Um, but we'll we'll see what happens. Um, obviously, we were talking, you know, just briefly prior to this, and it very much as a as a lifestyle, um, choosing to work in football, you're you're never really fully off. You're always waiting for the call, something happening because it is just so reactive rather than proactive. But yeah, I'm hoping to get some downtime at the very least, um, time to clear the head, recharge the batteries before we go again. And I think that's a thing that a lot of people don't really see is that reactive nature, especially within a club and how all consuming working a club is. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is. I mean, my my job, um, you know, isn't just to do player contracts, draft transfer agreements, all all the type of work that you would that would, you know, first come to first come to your mind when you think of a, a kind of lawyer in a in a football club it very much you know my job goes across all of the departments um i'm very much treated whether kind of wrongly or rightly as the kind of club's problem solver if you like whether it's a, a legal problem or not um they will tend to come to myself but you know i have other kind of roles as well you know as part of the kind of head of football administration and you know in dealing with the kind of legal aspects so I'll work very closely with the academy in terms of safeguarding policies, contracts for them, regulatory stuff. I deal with a lot of the disciplinary aspects across all of the club in terms of football regulations. On that as well, I sit on a number of um, working groups across the SFA and the SPFL when it comes to football regulations and agents and whatnot. Um, that's another aspect of my role, work with um, agents and kind of negotiating their fees and working with them in relation to representation contracts and other affairs. Um, I'll deal with the media team in terms of what they can and cannot do in relation to media and entertainment law. Very much involved with the commercial team as well um, in terms of sponsorship agreements. So it does go and then of course health and safety is a big aspect any kind of insurance claims any um health and safety implications will all fall at my feet as well so it's it's very all-encompassing but i mean it's really interesting um because i think one of the things about my role in particular compared to some of the other roles across a football club is you very much because you are dipping in and out of literally every single department of a football club from the football department through to all of the various club departments, um, you very much understand the wider picture and how each club, each department feeds into the other 
department and how it's all just one big chain reaction. Um, so it's, it's very interesting. And I, I guess as well, that's probably been, when I came to Dundee United, that was one aspect that I didn't really understand because I'd always just been dealing with either club legal teams or club executives before when advising them externally. Um, so to be able to understand the club operations side of things um, and how the, the kind of machine runs, if you like, to complement the football department was one of the one of the areas that I had to get up to speed with very quickly. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've just described your role there, which is absolutely fascinating. And it must be great to see, you know, how all the different parts of the club work together. And I guess one of the, you know, the most obvious things as well is the fact that I would imagine that you are the only woman often in many meeting rooms that you're in. How do you, is that a challenge to you or how do you cope with that? Um, How have you found that as an experience? I've found, I mean, in our club in particular, I'm one of very few women in in, in the club. Um, There are, and I mean, this, this is very much the same across all football clubs. I mean, the football industry is very male dominated. Um, and yes, when you go to meetings, um, whether that be, you know, club internal meetings or meetings at the SFA or the SPFL, um, it very much is male dominated, but I would say it's getting better. I mean, the SFA's legal team in particular is very much made up of women. They are company secretary, the kind of head of legal, Heather, um, kind of oversees it. Obviously, Claire White, who everybody's familiar with, the compliance officer there, and the head of governance at the SFA is a a woman as well, Laura Duggan. Um, So it's getting getting a lot better, um, and it's something we're seeing more and more, even if you look at the executive teams at football clubs. You know, we're we're seeing it even in Scottish football. I I think probably Scottish football is one of the, the kind of front runners, actually, when you look at some of the other leagues across the world across Europe, um, you know, we've got a we've got a lot of women in executive positions now and on boards, which is which is very very encouraging, um, and it's been a it's been a steep rise over I would probably say the last three to four years. Um, so it's certainly in in my role in particular, the kind of the legal side of things, it is still pretty very much a kind of rarity. Even when you look at sports sport lawyers externally. In law firms, it still tends to largely be dominated by men. But you know, I'm I'm hoping that the the landscape is changing. Certainly, when you see it changing internally, um, there's a lot of studies. I mean, when I did my my masters in sports law, my dissertation was focused on equality in the football industry and whether our equality laws were enough to be able to tackle. Some of the discrepancies that we see but you know one of the things that I found was it's not it's it's we are not certainly the UK in particular is is not uh, um, is not out there on its own it's, it's very much the norm across across the industry and even FIFA UEFA as well but you know there's lots of initiatives going on to improve that lots of programmes going on to improve it at governing body level and throughout the clubs as well. So it'll be interesting to see what the landscape looks like in the next five years. Mm. And it's also interesting to think, you know, we know what needs to change, but what can encourage more women 
into the game and into these roles and you know what is it that maybe perhaps puts them off at the minute I think probably it'll be the kind of access into the industry I think will, will put them out put, put them off I think it'll also be one one of the, the the points that I kind of focused on in my dissertation was this idea that certain sports are seen to be kind of male sports and female sports. Um, so, for instance, kind of football's always been thought to be oh, it's a man's sport. Gymnastics is more a female sport, and it seems to be something that's drummed into kids from an early age. So. In the primary schools, you'll see the boys playing football and you'll see the girls playing netball or gymnastics or whatnot. When I was doing my dissertation, I did a study on the US because women's football in the United States is very popular. It's more popular than male football or men's football. And the reason being is that they think it's down to a piece of legisla legislation called Title IX. And Title IX came into play in the 70s and what it basically said was that in the education sectors, what you were offering to the boys was what you had to offer to the girls as well throughout school, all the way up to your kind of universities or your collegiate courses in the United States. Um, and that went that that wasn't just the program itself. It was basically if the men's sport was being broadcasted, the women's sport had to be broadcasted. Whatever money you were pumping into the men's sport, it had to go into the women's sport. So what they were doing for men's football they were doing for women's football and football or, or soccer let's call it in the united states because i want to mix it up with american football was very much a kind of new sport in the united states around about the 1970s the united states had very kind of focused on baseball basketball american football was their kind of traditional sports and the traditional male sports like we have have here so when they introduced soccer in the kind of 60s, 70s, when Title IX was coming out, everybody became involved in it. Mm -hmm. And that is what I think potentially the secret is, because that is what will encourage more females getting involved because they have an interest in the sport itself. They understand the sport. They understand the rules of the game. Um, still in the United States, you know, women's basketball in particular it's starting to make moves, it's starting to get popular, but it's been a long hurdle and it's been a you know a, a long drive to get there. Women's baseball and women's American football is still lagging behind because it was always seen to be dominantly a, a male sport. Um, so one of the things that I think that we need to focus on is how do we get out of this mindset that, especially for the, the youngsters, you know, if you've got a little girl who wants to go and play football, instead of going playing gymnastics or netball, let her do it. Mm. You know, I, I think as well, you know, it, it helps focus on, you know, strength and psychological strength as well. If you've got boys and girls playing football together at, at a young age. I, I, read a, um, I read a news story um, not that long ago, about a year ago, um, and it was Mar Marissa Callahan, who's, uh, um, I think she was the captain of the, she, might, she, may be, she may very well still be the captain of the Northern Ireland women's football team. And she was saying that when she grew up, she never had any female role models. Mm -hmm. She played football with her brothers because she grew up in a male kind of dominated family. But her idol was Henrik Larsson. And she used to watch him. 
And there was I mean, because there nobody there was no such thing as women's football when mm. she was growing up, and she's only in her kind of late twenties, early thirties now. And I I think that is one of the main issues because see if you look at other sports, Joe, tennis for instance, um, lots of female sports lawyers, um, mm-hmm. athletics, lots of females working in athletics, and I think that's maybe one of one of the issues. So maybe whereas women's football gets more, and it doesn't need to be women's football, it can just be being interested in football in general. Yeah. But I think um, that may very well be the the opener. You know, as, as more women get involved in the sport, whether it's men's football or, or women's football, as you see more exposure of it, I think they, that is when you might see more women becoming involved in the game, whether it be, you know, at a kind of legal level, executive level or, 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 or the playing level. Mm-hmm. I think it's all about the next generation, Joe. Yeah, it's definitely, that's something, a common theme of, you know, from people we've spoken to, like yourself that work in the game, but also people like Shelley Kerr, the Scotland manager, who say the exact same thing. Growing up, they had nobody to look up to other than tennis players or, you know, sports idols and other, or male footballers. That was it. But it's such a gradual process, isn't it, for the for the next generation coming through, like our kids now who are encouraged to play football, you know, but it's hitting an age as well. I feel like when girls hit a certain age and boys hit a certain age, they don't want to play together anymore or the boys get too big and too fast for them. And is there that system there to pull the girls through? Um, so I, I think that all goes back to there will always come a time when, and there's a lot of cases on this, um, uh, you know, there was a, an actual, there was a legal case actually, not to do with football, but ice hockey, whereby it was basically a case of, you know, they, they, they were gender sized, if you like, so the women never played with the men, but it was basically a case of until there's a, a health and safety risk, it was seen in Canada to be unlawful. Now there comes a time in ice hockey, obviously, because of the kind of brutality of, of the game, where it does become dangerous. But what what that particular legal case said was that even for the development of women's of the women's game, it was seen as being advantageous to be training alongside the men and practicing with men and playing with men because it raised the level mm. of the game for the women. But in terms of what you're saying about there comes a time, there comes an age when they split off. I think some of that, when it's not to do with the health and safety issue, I think some of that comes down to the the psychological effect. And I think it all goes back to making it the norm. So, for instance, you know, if a, let, let's say, for instance, a female develops an interest in the game in her kind of early teens or kind of late primary school age, but there's that psychological aspect that, I can't play football with the boys or it's not girly to play football with the boys. I need to be girly. I need to do this. I need to do that. It's all about the stereotypes. However, if you're making football a unisex game until you get to a a health and safety issue where it becomes the norm, then you're dealing with those stereotypes. You know, you're never going to be able to deal with those stereotypes until you actually make the practical steps of removing the, the gender barriers and them playing together, in my opinion, 
and that will remove those psychological aspects as well. And I think as well, it will make females stronger as well by dealing with boys at boys at a young age, mm. you know, and dealing with the, 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 the various kind of personality traits mm-hmm. and how, you know, bouncing off each other at, at, at a young age. Um, I think I think there's a lot of advantages to boys and girls playing football at a very young age until there becomes a health and, and safety impact. I know that there's some um, clubs, I think Rangers in particular, up until a certain age, now play have 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 mixed have unisex teams playing in in one of the kind of youth leagues. I don't know if it's the West of Scotland league, but I remember speaking to Amy McDonald about that, and she. She has um, unisex teams up until a particular age. And I think there's a lot of advantages to that for the reasons I've set out previously. And I think that, but, you know, going back to the fact that, you know, it it is a societal thing that will take time. I mean, on a really high level, when you take my little girl who's played football since she was about five, hit a point and she just said, but they're not passing to me. And that's it. The boys just will not pass to the girls because they're a girl. And that that's a sort of basic thing that is going to take time for people to change the way they view women in, in sport and in, and in football. And that's at eight or nine years old, you know. Yeah. And I think that all comes back down to what we've talked about before. It's exposure. It's about having enough exposure, whether it's, you know, going to these types of unisex games or seeing it on the TV, women's football, um, removing the, the kind of gender barriers, that's the only way that you're going to tackle that, is getting out into the community, it's seeing it on the TV, it's seeing it in the newspapers, it's it's about putting it out there and putting it into people's faces. That's the only way, the way you'll change it, in my opinion. Um, it, it's, it's the same with, you know, you can you can apply it the, the exact same way to some of the other issues that we find in football, like sectarianism. It all goes back to the community. Mm-hmm. you know and and putting it out there and taking the steps taking the practical steps to educate people and remove those stereotypes remove the barriers and integrate mm-hmm. that's it it's about education isn't it and exposure yeah. absolutely mm-hmm. um and there's there does remain i mean obviously there is a lot of gains being made but we do know there's still a lot of work to be done as well and in terms of your own sort of career what what attracted you to working in sport and working in football? Well, I'd always had had a love of football. Football's always been my kind of sport as well. Um, and again, that's probably because I've grown up in a male-dominated family. Um, you know, all of my cousins are boys. Um, my kind of on my mum's side, she's the only girl. It's all uncles that I've got. It's not aunties. Um, when I was a young kid, I was taken to, um, because it was all boy cousins that I had, we were all taken to the football rather than anywhere else. So it was always, I kind of grew up with football because of that. And when I, um, I was very fortunate that when I was doing my law degree, I was able to go into a, a football club and, and gain work experience and understand how the law interacts with football and how football is, you know, exists on a set of regulations and a a set of regulations that are universal across all of football. 
you know, it's, a, it's the same set of, of, of regulations that apply across the board um, and how lawyers can become involved in that. And that's why I wanted to become involved, because it meant that I could use my university degree to, with my love of, of the sport. And that's how I, I got involved. And um, I mean, I'm very lucky to be involved in, in football. I mean, the, certainly the, the jobs are not easy to, to come by. And not every football club has a legal representative within the football club. So, you know, I, I am very lucky to to be where I am. Um, but it, it's certainly interesting because I think as football becomes, you know, as 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 the football clubs become more commercialised and there becomes more and more money involved in football, certainly more and more clubs are are starting to build legal teams. You're certainly seeing that in England. It's very rare that a, a football club, certainly in the Premier League, and you know the top half of the Championship, wouldn't have at least one legal representative within it. So it's certainly um, a growing industry mm-hmm. in terms of kind of football lawyers, if you like. And obviously, like you seem like a, such an ambitious person. What I mean, your focus, I would imagine, is on Dundee United for now. But I mean, what is it? You know, do you have sort of a plan where you would like you kind of see yourself? Not really. I mean, at, at, at the moment, I'm very much 100% focused on Dundee United and getting the job done there. Um, you know, I'm still relatively junior, I think you'd probably describe me in terms of uh, a kind of lawyer, if you like. I've got less than 10, 10 years um, experience. So it's still really much learning and developing, getting to know the role, getting to know the football club. I mean, next up is, for me, is going to be learning more about the the kind of business side of the football club as well, rather than just the kind of legal and regulatory side, still building on the club operations side and seeing where that takes me mm-hmm. um, within Dundee United. And then where I go from there, um, we'll see. And I guess, obviously, that's what's next for you in terms of your personal development. You touched on earlier um, the return of spectators as well um, in terms of to the sport. Um, Is that something that you're hugely involved in? I mean, we've seen the government obviously rejecting Celtic's bid for a test event this weekend. Um, How hopeful are you or or, or what what would you like to see going forward? Well, I'm very much involved in it. So... um, at uh, Dundee United, I've created a, a return of spectators working group, um, which I'm, I'm chairing. Um, and we are working on protocol documents just now. Um, we're working on making the stadium biosecure. So when we get the green light, um, fans are able to come in um, safely. Um, we're quite ad- advanced with our protocol document um, and what we're doing. So um, we're, we're certainly... A, a, um, will be ready to go come the 14th of September. Um, I'm, I'm confident that, um, I mean, obviously we don't have we don't have any more home games now until the 19th of September. So we're away to Kilmarnock um, this coming Saturday, then there's the international break. We'll then have Rangers away and then we'll have St Mirren. So we won't have the opportunity to have a, a test event, if you like, unless we have some friendlies lined up um, between now and then. But I'm, I'm I'm confident that come the 19th of September, we'll have some fans in the stadium in some capacity. What that number will look like, I don't know, but we'll be ready for it, without a doubt. Fantastic. Laura, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. 
Thank you so much, Joe. It was a pleasure. Thank you.